0: Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, Sad, Confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, director Todd Field returns to the cinema at long last with Tar. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. We're ending the year with a great filmmaker, a first-time guest on the podcast... Mr. Todd Field is on the show today talking all things Tar, which is a movie that I positively adore, starring Kate Blanchett. Look it up. We had her on just a couple of months back. Uh, But I also love his earlier work, In the Bedroom, Oscar nominated film, Little Children, Oscar nominated film. These are two exceptional works. And Tar, if you don't know, is a bit of a character study, kind of a thriller, kind of a drama, kind of a black comedy at times. I appreciate it on all those levels and more. Uh, it asks big questions, you will ask big questions of it, and it will stick with you for some time, and that's all you can ask for in a great piece of work. So I was more than delighted to help spread the good word by having this chat with Todd on the podcast here. Uh, he is a he's a fascinating guy, he, this is a guy who, um, for some, maybe came to prominence with a, a decent acting career. I mean, I remember him in Ruby in Paradise and in Twister and, of course, in Eyes Wide Shut. And then he made that difficult transition into becoming a, a true master behind the camera. Um, he's got some great stories going way back when. His maybe seemingly all um, unlikely friendship with Adam Sandler, unlikely to some. Um, but they have remained friends. They're actually talking about collaborating, which is a fascinating um, idea. Uh, he talks, of course, about the previous films, but also about Stanley Kubrick. Eyes Wide Shut was a major film for him, a turning point in his career for a number of reasons, and he's got some great stories about that production. Um, yeah, I really vibed. I think with with Todd, and I just, I just loved geeking out with him about movie making and uh, a really fascinating career. So, and also just a good excuse, frankly, to spread the good word on a movie that just deserves as much love. Uh, as it can get tar uh, will get a bunch of oscar nominations i'm sure um and yeah like if you haven't seen it put it up put it at the top of your list guys this is a, this is a really special one um other things to mention well look we're, we're wrapping up the year with a great podcast i hope you've enjoyed what we've had to offer in 2022 it's been a year of a lot of firsts for happy sad confused some major guests we've never had before a lot of live events, which I was thrilled to do at 92NY and Symphony Space. I'm happy to say there will be many more to come in the new year. Um, we've launched the video versions of the podcast on YouTube. Remember to subscribe on YouTube to youtube.com slash Josh Horowitz. All of that is free. You can watch virtually every uh, episode of the current podcast in video form if you so desire. And, of course, we have the Patreon going. I think it's now in our second year, second or third year. And... Um, that's that's your place if you want the early access, the discount codes, all the cool stuff. Remember to go to patreon.com slash happy, sad, confused. All the info. Don't worry. It's in the show notes. You know the deal. Um, all right. Let's get to it, guys. Let's close out 2022 in style. I hope you guys are having a great end of the year, a great holiday season. I hope you're getting some well-deserved rest. Uh, sit back and relax and enjoy this chat with a truly talented filmmaker. Here is me and todd field there's no pomp and circumstance except to say i'm such a fan of mr todd field's work and it's a privilege uh his new film is tar i've been obsessed with it ever since i saw it you will be too if you haven't seen it go seek it out todd welcome officially to the happy sad confused podcast man thank you thanks josh so um I was going to say you're a first time guest on the podcast, but I mean, to be fair, there weren't podcasts around the last time you had a film, so you, yeah, you, yeah, there weren't even cars then. <laughs> it was, was basically the Flintstones. Out there. Yeah,
1: that's right.
0: <laughs> um, no, but it, it, it's a privilege. It's given me an excuse to go back and revisit uh, some of your earlier work in the bedroom and little children this uh, this week, and all just amazing movies, man. Talk to me first about. Just what life is like right now, day to day. You know, you have birthed this amazing, unusual child into the world, Tar, and the reviews have been great. And it's the silly award season, which is silly, but also great. Um, are you obsessing about how people are interpreting it? Are you enjoying it? Give me a sense of what life is like right now for you, ma'am.
1: Well, it's it's it, you know, um, I started work on this in March 2020, and I haven't had a day off since. So, um, it's kind of like one very long, surreal day, Josh. Um, I, I, I'm looking forward um, uh, to the future when I can kind of stand back and and really look at the thing, you know, what it is. Um, but I'm still very much in it. Um, yeah. These are all different processes that uh, that are necessary to to filmmaking. Um, some of them are are very physical some of them are um uh you know just a it's really it's an awful lot of time you know i mean and that's sort of uh i guess that's the thing that uh that really um is different for me you know because normally i work in advertising so uh, you start something, you shoot it, you edit it in a few days and it's, you know, in front of the Olympics, two days later in front of a billion people and you're done and you don't think about it again. And this is a, this is a very, very different sort of thing. And as you point out, uh, you know, the last film I made a hundred years ago, um, you know, you would do a couple of days of press and, um, you know, maybe go to a festival or two and enjoy, uh, the sort of, um, you know, the, the kind of privilege of being at a festival and being around other colleagues and and their work and and do you know do a couple of things and that was sort of it you know um and once you know once the, the film you know monica willie and i finished the film you know in terms of the the final sound and the grade um really in in the middle of august so um venice started less than two weeks later um and it's been sort of nonstop then uh, since then. So um, it's a very long digressive non-answer to your question. No, 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 it, it, but, no. It's all. Yeah, yeah. I,
0: I I get it, and it's strange kind of to see the cadence of your career because you know you make these two films within about five years of each other, and then you have this extended gap. But it's like not like as you say. You it's funny. You just kind of term yourself like I usually work in advertising. Like it's it's strange for me to think of you saying that about yourself because of course that's kind of invisible to us like the 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 way you've made a living frankly probably the last 15 years um the stuff i mean ha- have you been able to derive beyond an income derive artistic satisfaction from working in that field the last 15 years or was something occasionally. lacking occasionally
1: you know? yeah occasionally you have i mean i have and, and people do um you know I mean, Stanley Kubrick was ex- like obsessed with like, you know, low and brow commercials. Like how could you have that much story in 30 seconds, you know? So there is something to be said for the form. It's a very tough form. Just like short films are much harder than feature films and short stories and novellas are much harder than novels, you know? Um, so there's a certain kind of, um, you know, by necessity, sort of um, fitness as a, as a filmmaker and, and, um, and strength that you gain and confidence you gain technically um, because you're at the forefront of essentially running a, a skunk works for the feature business, which is very glacial. So you're you're experimenting with camera systems and glass and equipment and uh, technology that long before TV or feature people ever see it. And that right. part of it's extremely exciting. Where it's different is, um, uh, and, and, and I've, 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 I've said this before because I've been answered I've had to answer this question. You know, it's a, it's a it's a very logical question to ask someone that hasn't made a film in so long, which is the difference is the first day of shooting, say, for instance, on tar, the very first setup for for us um, was not with the orchestra. It was actually up in the rake um, for the scene that takes place right after um, the first orchestra rehearsal. And that was with Cate Blanchett, of course, uh, Noemi Merlon and, and Nina Haas. And I remember um, the very first take of that scene uh, this sort of, you know, getting a very tight feeling in my chest and feeling um, a little bit emotional, and it, because it just suddenly hit me, oh yeah, oh I remember what this was like. Yeah. You know, it, the difference is is that you're doing something that has a lot of meaning for you, um, but mainly that you're working with other artists that are so incredible on camera that can do such amazing things. I'm in dialogue with those artists, and and that is where it's very different than advertising. Most of the time, you're shooting inanimate objects, or you're shooting people that do commercials. That in most cases are not actors and don't even pretend to be actors.
0: Right. The star, the star is the the Subaru. The star is the uh, is the the object. Often those, yeah. Um,
1: I'm curious about yeah, the uh, haircut. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, I promise not to obsess over the gap. We're going to get to the film because I, it's worthy of discussion. But I'm curious like, you weren't in director jail. It's not like you had made two very acclaimed movies. One, financially very successful in the bedroom. I mean, if you look at the financials on that, it's kind of an amazing thing and very telling of the time. Like, that movie made, I think, $45 million. And that's just not the environment right now for for that kind of film, unfortunately. Um, Even Little Children, which financially wasn't a success, garnered a bunch of Oscar nominations, is hugely revered. Um, I'm just curious, like, you know, I look at the Wikipedia entry. It's always telling when there's like a section of unrealized projects <laughs> on, a, on a filmmaker. There is that section for you, Todd. Yeah. Did you? Did you? Yeah, feel- well,
1: I, yeah. I, I mean, that's. I don't. I think it's. I think it's fairly typical for all filmmakers. You know. Um, I guess. Yeah. And then the question. And the question is just sort of the, you know, the difference between um, the tension and the desire to to be on the floor at all costs. You know, and the difference for me is is that. Um, I only wanted to be on the floor if if I can be doing exactly what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and if I can't, I'd rather be on the floor doing something else, like selling a Subaru. So, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, that, I think that that's that's the essential difference. And you know, as you point out, yes, um, in the bedroom was one of the most profitable films of of ever. You know, I mean, we made that film for nothing, um, and that was a very particular time in the business where we had. Um, you know, where we had the typical so-called fourth quarter audience, and that audience was um, at the very least had an undergraduate degree, um, 75% of the audience was female, and the age of that audience was, you know, 40 to 70 years old. Um, and so in in many ways, looking at in the bedroom from the outside and people did, because everyone passed on that movie, everyone, uh, except for Good Machine. Um, they all say, Well, this is about 50-year-old people that, you know, lose a right. child. Who's going to be interested in that? I was like, Well, that's actually that those are the people that go to fourth quarter films. And if you make something for them, they'll come. And they did. Um, for little children, you know, we were at a studio with Bob Shea, and Bob, you know, was gone when that film was greenlit. Um, and I was warned by Toby Emmerich and everyone else that at new line that if i wanted to i should take the film to another studio because he was going to bury it which is exactly what he did he never really released the film we had a trailer like six weeks before it was released which was back then no internet it was all theatrical in front of one movie was a disaster you know um and they never released the film on more than 42 screens ever i didn't even, realize even, that that's even crazy. when we got oscar nominations so i mean meryl yeah. streep got up you know um at the Golden Globes that year, which also they didn't show a clip for the film, even though it was nominated for Best Picture, um, large part because I think that Bob Shea made sure they didn't have a clip, um, wow. and it essentially did like a thirty-minute, you know, um, plea uh, to uh, to to theater owners to show the film. And I remember I was sitting next to Bob Shea at the time, and he leaned in and whispered in my ear, "They should be calling the studio heads." Um, you know, it wasn't a particularly nice wow. experience and so, so um
0: so ironic given also like the first one was with miramax like were you did harvey scissorhands come in at 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 uh in the bedroom at all did you have it sounds like you had actually a decent experience the first time around ironically
1: um well i had a great experience with good machine and with green street who funded yeah. the film but it wasn't a miramax film i mean and harvey didn't buy it it was bought by mark gill and Anya mantre at sundance and I wasn't part of those conversations. I had met with Peter Rice uh, and I'd met with some other people and I was called and told that that it was just a fact. They were selling it to Miramax. And wow. at the time I, I literally uh, went into the bathroom and I threw up and 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 I I was very emotional. My wife was about ready to take me to the hospital because that was the last place I wanted that film because it- You'd heard it the stories the-
0: by then, I assume? had you, it was-
1: yeah i mean it was that but it was also it wasn't the kind of it felt like it should be at like sony classics like with with you know with those guys um it was a small film it wasn't you know shakespeare in love and it wasn't yeah chocolate or anything like that and it's funny because people talk about that film as a miramax film which always kind of makes me cringe Uh, it. it, it really had nothing to do with that studio at all
0: So then this experience with focus, which is a, a beautiful one in that yes all these after all these false starts of trying of not willing to make compromises for something that you didn't want to want you know invest two years of your life in, they essentially from what I gather say write what you want and we're we're basically in at a certain budget I assume like this is this is not how it happens and must have been. In some ways, a bizarre but beautiful thing <laughs> to happen, especially during the pandemic when we were all going crazy, can be a sense of sort of the circumstances and the unusualness of this arrangement with tar for for you and
1: focus. Well, it was it, it was unusual, um, you know, and as you point out, it was a very long time uh, between uh, you know sort of um, coming out of little children and, and making tar, um, and you know people you know, people have asked over the last few months, they always say, well, why did, why so long? And I was like, well, I was waiting, you know, I was waiting for a call from Peter Kujawski, you know, um, because, you know, Peter, um, going back to good machine, you know, Peter came up from good machine. So, um, that was very much like family, you know, and for, for Peter to say, um, we just want to make a film with you, um, write whatever you like, you know, was extraordinary, you know, um, and to be paid that kind of, um, respect, you know, I was desperate to meet it. Um, and, um, and as you say, it was the beginning of the pandemic, it was, it was March, you know, 2020 and you had to really seriously ask ask yourself, would there be theatrical or anything on the other side of it? The world was ending, you know, people we knew were sick and were dying. I lost my father at the beginning of the pandemic and, um, you know, to show up at, at a table every day and ask yourself, does this matter? Um, uh, Was a very, very um, uh, real existential question. Um, But on on the other hand, it was, you know, it was an incredible gift because um, I had a place to escape to every day for a few months. um, And that was a, it was a a real lucky break.
0: How much of where you were, you described that time in your life, which was, fraught for all of us. And I, you know, my condolences on your, on your dad, but like, this is a, this is a film that has kind of this existential indefinable dread that kind of like hangs over it. You can't quite define it for a while. It's the first time I was watching it. I just, I was uneasy. And I mean, as a compliment, I I felt like something was coming and I wasn't sure what, Um, how much did that inform? Was that informed by where you were at personally? in the world that was falling apart at the time where was your head at and how do you think it ended up on the page
1: i you know i don't know i mean i i um i don't really ask myself those kinds of questions um you know i'm probably you know strangely out of touch you know um in terms of when, when i sit down to to execute material i just kind of follow my nose you know so um
0: do you think about genre? Like, are you like, because this, again, I feel like I've read like five different reviews that could all cite it as a different genre, as a a thriller, a character study, a black comedy. <laughs> um, is that helpful for you? And do you delight in that it is kind of indefinable?
1: Um, well, you know, I, um, I think that what you're pointing out in terms of um, asking the question, do you think that? the pandemic informed the writing of the of the script i would say 100 percent, absolutely um in terms of you know i said this to my wife the other night i i couldn't have written the script if if the world wasn't ending um so probably a lot of the enthusiasms that i have um as an amateur film goer you know um as a student of film um probably wound up in a container um and um i'll I'll sort of leave it at that (laughs) (laughs) well
0: yeah it's funny you you put it that i mean because this is about the world ending as it were for lydia tar at least the world that she's constructed for herself um and she is a constructed a reconstructed individual um it's uh needless to say an amazing performance from kate blanchett who you wrote the, the script for um Do you How much love do you have for her? I mean, she's, again, someone you can hate, you could have some admiration for, you could admire her talents and uh, dismiss how she's conducted herself personally, but needless to say, she's a complex figure. I guess, do you have much sympathy for her? Do you view her as a tragic figure? What's your attitude about your main character here?
1: I have many feelings about her. I mean, she is accomplished she is um logical she is hypocritical she is capricious she is um uh absurd she is lacking in some basic self-awareness um she's a human being to me you know so she's very real to me um and i feel differently about her depending on when i think about her right know. and i i feel differently about her and felt very differently about her when Monica Willie and I were in Scotland editing, you know, again, I've I've told this story many times, but it bears repeating that, you know, we would watch the film down and take several days off from, from it uh, because we knew we had to. Um, And then we, and we would designate certain periods of time to watch it so that we knew that um, we would sort of like, be it you know sort of a specific time of the day where we could pay attention the best we kind of agreed upon that and after we would watch it inevitably we'd ask each other the same question which was how did you feel about her today you know um and sometimes um it was 180 degrees for one of us than how we felt the previous viewing um and that was exciting um because that didn't change that went on for weeks it and and it made it very very um uh there there was sort of confirmation bias for us because that's what we were after which was that this thing could could change on you depending on when and how you saw it and what state of mind you were in potentially but also it made it um extremely challenging to know when we were finished you know um and really the bar for that was if we started leaning one way or the other with her and and felt as if we were pointing in any manner that we had failed. Um, and so it was really about subtraction more than anything else. Well, that, that leads me to something
0: I want to bring up, which is I think something that that permeated all your work and and much of all the films that I or most of the films that I love, which is this um holding back, frankly, and not telling the audience how to feel and leaving um room for interpretation. And this is a film that, you know, I got a chance to see this at Tell first. I've seen it a couple of times since. And um, this is a film that will stick around like like in the bedroom and little children where we're box office or not oscars or not it's just it, it it will i have a thousand percent confidence in that and you should too um is that is, is that what you gravitate towards as a as a watcher of film too i mean kubrick is mentioned all the time and i want to talk about stanley kubrick with you a, a bit um but i think of that like i think of you know the film you were in eyes wide shut and how a thousand think pieces have been written and a thousand more will be written about that film and every film he's done um is that the space that you enjoy as both a creator and a consumer of film
1: yeah i mean the films that really um excited my imagination and made me want to 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 make my own films you know um were films that that left room for me inside of them you know and 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 that goes back to the when i first moved to new york city as a young man um and um had only been exposed to for the most part in large part to very mainstream movies and those were mainstream movies that uh, i saw hundreds of times because i worked as a projectionist at a second run movie house when i was in high school so um and and i love those movies and i love those movies deeply you know And, and and they were very mainstream films like the first raiders of the lost ark like i i've seen it probably 350 times for real you know, like I've watched it in a theater 350 times. So I have a huge amount of, um,
0: you know, the uh, point where Belloc swallows the fly, you know, when that happens. Yeah,
1: I know. Yeah. I know everything. I know. Yeah. 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 And I've had these conversations. I tried to restrain myself the first time I really sat with Steven Spielberg and not you know tried to bother him about questions about them. Um, and he told me some, he was kind enough to tell me some very, very funny stories. Um, but, uh, but it wasn't really time to move to New York, you know, and I was working across the street from Lincoln Center and um somebody pushed me over there and said you should go to the New York Film Festival that if you want to see films, not movies, right. you know. Um, and I didn't understand that distinction, but I was about ready to very quickly. Um and you know, seeing films like Jarmish's uh, you know, first film uh or at least his first feature film, you know, um, and, and seeing the Coens had their first film there that year and there was a Truffaut retrospective' it was the first time I'd seen like the 400 blows um you know, I understood that there was a difference. These yeah. were films that that invited me to have a conversation with them um and they weren't talking at me um and and that kind of destroyed stuff for me in a in, a, in, a, in one way because before then I would, go down to Times square and see movies like target starring gene hackman and matt Dillon, and they were playing father and son and you never questioned it you know (laughs) you just you're like okay well it's a movie i mean that's how it works you know but but there was this sort of very you know there's a very different way of 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 reading a film um uh after that so yeah i mean that's a it's a long um way of saying yes Uh, there, (laughs) there were certain films that that made me want to 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 make my own, for sure.
0: So, so you know, we, we obviously can't go into everything in detail. But, of course, you, you, your path is a, is an interesting one in that you had a, a successful career as an actor. I mean, I remember seeing Ruby in Paradise. Somehow you ended up being Jan de guy for a couple movies. Is there a story there? that How did how did Twister and The Haunting happen? Was he just a Todd well, Field fan? I, hap-
1: no. I, mean, I, I think what happened was, um, you know, yes, I acted for five years and then I quit. Uh, and the last thing that the last film that I made was *Ruby in Paradise*, and that was a film that Victor Nunez had inherited some money from an aunt. Uh, he made that movie for three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and he made it with like a six-person crew. Uh, and that had a giant effect on me. I was about ready to go; uh, I, I'd quit acting. I was going to go um, to the American Film Institute and be a fellow, um, and I had been accepted. And Victor was very courtly and very kind and uh, very inclusive uh, in that process. And while I was at the American Film Institute, a short film that I had made with some friends uh, played in front of Ruby in Paradise at the Sundance Film Institute uh, fil- or Film Festival, and it won the Grand Jury Prize. And all of a sudden, I didn't even have an acting agent. I, I had a, I didn't have a manager. I had like you know I had an attorney. Um, I started getting calls, and my wife was working at the time to try to get me through film school, and we had you know a couple of young kids at home, and. Uh, I couldn't really turn down the acting work, whatever it was, because it it was tangible, and I needed to get us out of the hole. So, uh, one of those jobs was, yes, Twister. You know, uh, another one of those jobs was uh, Nicole Hollis Center's first film, Walking and Talking. Great movie. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, yeah. and then the third one was Stanley Kubrick calling me out of the blue and and saying, "I think it might be good for you to come and make this film for me." And I, there was no way I was going to say no. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like I had some some big acting career. I was a, I was kind of a journeyman actor, you know, futzing around. Uh, um, And uh, I made this one independent film and, and it kept me working for the next eight years, essentially.
0: Are you are you hurt they didn't come to you or maybe they did for the Twister sequel? Did you see that Minari director, Lee Isaac Chung, is directing of all things the, the Twister sequel, Todd?
1: Well, it, well, it's really funny. You know, I was doing a QA uh for, for Tar out in Los Angeles and I looked down and there was Sean Whalen, uh, you know, who's who's in Twister with me. Um and he, and he said, you know, they're, they're making a sequel. And I said, yeah, yeah, I heard, I heard, but I don't think they're interested in any of us, you know, um, I don't know. nor should they be. Now, I remember talking to Bill Paxson about this years ago, because, because Bill and Bill and I were, um, we were, we're really, really good friends. You know, we'd made three pictures together as actors. And, um, we had both of our first films as directors come out the, the same year and our sons went to school together up in ohio so i used to spend quite a bit of time with the paxtons and um bill was always trying to pitch me on a, a, a twister sequel he was really really um adamant that it should happen so I, I think somewhere bill bill's happy that it's happening in whatever form
0: a good filmmaker was that frailty his first one it was a good that was a good one i enjoyed it uh...
1: it was yeah, yeah it was good yeah. yeah and bill butler shot that who shot jaws with spielberg you know oh really my gosh good cameraman
0: yeah amazing amazing okay so let, let's talk a little kubrick i feel like that's an hour long at least conversation in its own right but uh look i will take any excuse to talk about stanley kubrick when first of all how long were you were you there was that like six months a year of your life it's a rel- it's not obviously the lead of the film but you have some significant moments but obviously that film was i think the longest production short of a avengers movie <laughs> in existence what was your experience just in terms of length uh and access to stanley like
1: well you know I, I i knew some people that had worked with stanley um before um and when Jan Harland, uh, who was producing Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley's brother-in-law, um, his wife's brother, um, when he told me that um, we're just going to have you come over in October, this is 1996, and you'll just work a few weeks and you'll be done, I I kind of thought that might not be the case, um, and and that that's exactly what it was. So I you know I started the first day of the shoot the very first day of the shoot and I was there for the last day of the shoot for uh the orgy sequence so that was October 96 and I wrapped the end of January 1998 that was for three scenes three scenes um so I did go back and forth uh between 96 and 97 and I went back and forth between at some point in 90 97 mid, mid 97 but probably I was there for maybe nine months out of 18 months and you know we shot nights so uh um, they were very i think there's like maybe two day shots in the film you know right. um so so we were living like vampires you know it was a very odd way to live and you couldn't go off nights because it would wreck you so um i found you know i got called to set a lot when i wasn't working and i was happy to be there because there was nothing for me to do otherwise um and Stanley, uh, very much like Victor Nunez was very uh if you were if you were inside a, a project together, you were inside a project together. So um, you know, he would have me go on the trailer and look at dailies I was involved in, and he would allow me to to you know to sort of stand behind him, um, you know, on set and things like that. So um, you know, from as a student of film, it was a tremendous, um, you know, <laughs> incredible um oh. privilege, you know. Um And, uh, uh, yeah, and it has a, you know, in in so many ways, um, that experience uh, is is sort of impossible to talk about,
0: you know. Was he aware of your intentions? Like, had you talked about specifically in the bedroom or generally your intention to become a, a filmmaker?
1: Well, I met him when he was doing camera tests. I was sort of, Jan dropped me off at this giant manor house uh in luton luton who is the manor house was designed the interiors the same man that did the titanic um and has a very interesting history to it but so i was just you know left to kind of wander around i didn't no one took me to be introduced you know be introduced to stanley or anything like that and i had a camera with me um around my neck and i was just wandering you know i walked around for a couple hours just making pictures um and then I came to this, this ballroom uh, and I looked in and the door was cracked and there was Stanley Kubrick, yeah. you know, doing lighting tests with, with Larry Smith and and the guys. And, um and he saw me, you know, and, and, you know, he has this famous stare that everybody, you know, you could feel it coming out of, out of any still photograph. And, and if if you're in that beam, (laughs) you know, it's like a, it's like a tractor beam. I literally, you know, I almost wanted to wet my pants. So, um, and, and, and he, and he said, Hey, 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 you're here, you're here. Come on over here. You know? Um, And I, you know, I I sort of stumbled forward and, um, and I said, you know, I, hi, I'm Todd Field. He goes, I know who the fuck you are. I hired you, You know what (laughs) kind of camera is that? And he grabbed it from, from my neck and asked me how much I paid for it. And, what the year was and etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's sort of how our conversation began and so he knew i was a student of film he knew that i had i had gone through the american film institute although he didn't think very much about that he didn't believe in any kind of formal education uh based on on how he was built um and um and so yeah he was he was he 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 understood um that i wasn't just interested in acting you know um and 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 Tom Cruise um, was just a tremendous um, person to spend time with, and and he really, um, you know, he really came to to serve Stanley um, yeah. in every possible way. And but he also, you know, he paid attention. And and he, honestly, it, it was really Tom. You know, he took me aside after a few months and said, "You're going to make a feature film," and I said. Uh, yeah, I will. I went to film school. He goes, no, but you're going to make a feature film. You've got a few months now. What are you going to do? You know, wow. you should write a script. And I said, well, you know, there's a story I was thinking about. He goes, go get it. Go get it. When you come back here, I want to know you got this story. It really challenged me. Um, uh, and so I did. You know, I we, I tracked it down and somebody had the rights and they agreed to let me sort of come in. And um, by the end of, of my, my period, you know, working on Eyes Wide Shut, I had the script for in the bedroom and, uh, I'd given it to Stanley and, um, you know, I was able to actually sit with him and, and, and he asked me mainly because that's what he would always do. He would never tell you anything, you know, uh, but he would always ask you a lot of questions, you know, and he asked me a lot of questions about what I was thinking and why I wanted to do it. And he very gently offered me some, uh, extremely valuable advice. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that was a, uh, Eyes Wide Shut is, you know, in very in so many ways, um, the reason that I made that first film.
0: I mean, amazing. I love the Cruise story. I always talk about how that's a guy that just ob- obviously worships storytelling and worships like filmmakers. Like you look at the filmmakers he made a point of working with, especially in like the first like 10, 15 years of his career. And it's like, you know, Albert Stone, Scorsese, like you go down the list, he was just like knocking him off. And that, yeah, that's so telling. And And by the way, I also... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
1: Well, no, I mean, and De Palma and yeah, everybody. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah. he wanted, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and not to mention uh, for, for you and the Kubra connection, I, I would also love that you, of course, then established this relationship and professional relationship with Leon Vitali, who sadly passed in the uh, last year, who was his longtime kind of custodian assistant, associate producer. It tickled me to, to when I rewatched Little Children, to see him for a nanosecond in a very unusual moment in the film. Uh, so oh, you have
1: you have, you have no idea. There was there was a whole section with Leon that um, someday I have to unearth. You know the way you meet that character is Leon standing at the Long Beach Airport uh, with a um, uh, with a holding a sign that says um, "SK" on it, which is very funny because it's for this <laughs> char- it's for this character Slutty K. But it was also but, like an inside joke between fantastic. us, you know. So. Fantastic.
0: Yeah. Um, I had the privilege also of spending some time uh, with the great Adam Sandler recently. Adam oh, says yeah. you guys go way back. First, tell me the connection w- between you and Sandler.
1: Well, I mean, Sandler was a, you know, we were all young guys and it, it was mainly guys back then. Uh, this is like the mid 80s, late late 80s of uh, in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I think I first met Adam because I had a, a great friend, one of my dearest friends, Jimmy Vallely, and he was a comic, but he was also a writer. Um, uh, and he introduced me to a lot of other comics. And I used to, um, I used to stay with Jim and, um, and we'd, you know, we'd sit around at the improv and it, they, that, those were just the people that were around. And this is long before Adam was on Saturday Night Live or anything like that. Um, and you know, I was talking to Adam about this the other day because the, 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 my first memory of, of Adam was uh, I had sort of uh, tried to sort of boonswaggle my way into a meeting with Milos Foreman, who was going to do this film that he never ended up making um, called Hell Camp that was going to take place in Japan. And um, so he was meeting people over at Sony um Sony wanted him to make it with John Cusack and, and and he didn't want to do that he wanted to go with you know with someone unknown so um I had I was waiting in the lobby I think it was Ellen Chenoweth was a casting person and um and I saw Adam come out of the room with Milos um and he just looked really uh ashen you know um and I went in and had the meeting um and it went very well and actually uh, you know, I, I was going to end up, I ended up testing for the film uh, later on, but, but that day when I, when I came out of there, I went into the parking lot at Sony and all of a sudden I heard this, Hey field, field. (laughs) I was like, yeah. And I look over and there's Adam like poking out from behind his car. He's like, man, what was that? And I said, what what do you mean, Adam? He says, all he wanted to do was talk. He just wanted to talk to me, and I said, "I know that's that's how Milosh casts. He he really wants to get to know you." Yeah, but he wouldn't let me do anything. I got to do something. <laughs> and I, I, it was such a it was such a perfect uh, a perfect way to articulate um, the dilemma, you know, especially for 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 somebody that you know Adam's like a Ferrari. He's got so much going on. You yeah, know, let me under, let me play. Let the, me do my thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me do my thing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, Who knew you had such a Sandler impression in you? How, how often does that come out?
1: Oh, I don't know. I I, I have to apologize to Adam. I don't know. Probably it was a terrible impression. No, it was great. Life.
0: So, so you, you guys are talking about doing something. Can you say anything? Like, I mean, obviously he, I, I'm fascinated by his career. I mean, he's got these two amazing lanes he's been in where he's like arguably the biggest comedy star, him and Jim, Jim Carrey the last 20, 30 years. And then- his dramatic work is fantastic and it it attracts the best PTA and James L. Brooks. And there's a reason for that. I would, I I'm guessing this is the second lane you guys are going to work in. You're not going to do your Madison sequel.
1: Well, (laughs) well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it'll be like that. I don't know. I mean, no, I, no, I, you know, the funny thing is, is having met Adams at such a young age, you know, um, before our lives took their, you know, their, their natural course. Um, or unnatural course, uh, as it were. Um, you know, I I knew of his career. You know, I I like it's unignorable. You you would of course you would know about it. And um, my children were obsessed with Adam, and 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 my my youngest child now, uh, you know, uh, who's there's it is he he and his friends are obsessed with with Adam, like obsessed. You know, um. And I had never seen any of his films. The first film I ever saw of Adam's was Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Glove and how how I felt so lucky that that was my yeah. my first time seeing Adam in a film. <laughs> and it, and it just, you know, floored me because it it really is one of the great screen performances for me for of all time, you know? Um, and obviously the stuff he's done with, with the safties is just, yeah. you know, amazing and, um, uh, and as you mentioned, the, the stuff he's done with Brooks, and you know, and stuff he did with Noah, um, yep. uh, um, So, I mean, he's a he he has a, a an incredible range. You know, I mean, he really um, there's no one like him. And um, yeah, I hope I hope we end up working together. I really do.
0: Can you tease anything about what this idea is? Or is it, it's a specific idea? I assume like it's a specific thought. It's more than just oh, we should work together.
1: We've been talking about some things. I, it's, yeah, it's too early. to. Yeah.
0: <laughs> How far outside of your uh, conceptual comfort zone could you imagine yourself going? I teased you about like, oh, you're going to direct a Twister sequel, but like you, you have a nice, an amazing lane. And I would love to see you just make Todd Field, quote unquote, whatever these are, Todd Field movies the rest of your life. But is there that temptation? Do you take the meetings with studios just to see if your... Skill set can jibe with the Marvel, the whatever. Like, th- could you even see yourself playing in a sandbox that is is like that, a genre, big genre, four quadrant blockbuster kind
1: of thing? Well, I have. I mean, that, that's what advertising is. Someone will come to you yeah. and say do a close encounters thing or do an adventure thing or do, you know, a wink and a nod, you know, about pirates with, you know, huge budgets like $12 million budgets for commercials where you're making miniature ships and things like that. So I played with all those kinds of genres. And, and again, going back to sort of my uh, humble beginnings as a high school projectionist and, and, and watching, you know, genre films, these genre films, you know, the, the creator of, 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 of the great American genre films, you know, Steven Spielberg himself. Um, of course, I have a love for those things. And um, I don't think it's a question about whether I would ever want to make them. and, and, and you know, not to not to um, sound immodest, but <laughs> I'm fairly certain that I, I, I understand what it would take to make them. Yeah, um, those films will be very different than the films that I've made. I don't think that's the obstacle. I think the obstacle is that people very rightly so want you to see the thing that you've done. Um, And I don't think they're naturally thinking that um, they're going to hire me for the next born identity, you know. have you but even have had great- those meetings? I mean, you do have the real, as you said, the commercial reel. Like,
0: don't even tell them about your other movies. <laughs> Just show them the commercials. They might hire you. Yeah, that. yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean, it, we all get these. We all get these sort of kick me signs stuck on our backs. You know, um, and sometimes they're very hard to to pull off. So, um, I. Yeah, I mean, I would never say never. I mean, I, I like all kinds of movies. It's not like I'm sitting around watching Bergman all day, you know? I mean, I cry. I, I, <laughs> Crying I, I watch a lot. Just, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, I like him as much as the next person, you know, but it's not that's not my entire diet,
0: you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, yes, I contain multitudes. I like Billy Madison and Punch Drunk Love. I, uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, I'll let you go on this. I mean, again, we, we started by talking about all these. Potential other unrealized projects. Actually, I did an event with Daniel Craig last night, and I know you spent a lot of time. I heard two thousand pages were written of Purity. That's which this Jonathan Franzen adaptation. Crazy. I mean, are there any that you could see yourself coming back to if someone gave you, you know, the giant bag of money to greenlight any of these kind of projects that almost came to fruition? What's the one you would will into
1: existence? I don't think any of them. I mean, with you know Daniel was in the room with John and I seven days a week. We wow. put, we rolled up our sleeves and worked for a year on that. And, you know, I think there was a sort of polite sort of, you know, um, uh, words that were said that, Oh, it was, you know, a bond thing that came up, but that wasn't true. It was just the, the, you know, the network just didn't want to spend what the three of us thought needed to be spent to make the thing that we'd spend a year of our lives on. Um, if that material wasn't so prophetic um and it was prophetic it it had um we were there were things in the air that wound up in that material that have unfortunately come to pass having to do with the american government having to do with geopolitics having to do with a lot of things right this is purity by
0: the way to let people know the yeah i mean if
1: we if, if we were to if we were we could never go back to it now because it would feel um cheap as if we were uh you know we were being opportunistic as opposed to being prophetic right, so right um there was another project that you know kate planchette and this is where i met kate um with joe didion that we worked on for a very long time together um that will never happen and Joan's not here anymore um but yeah i mean know i don't i don't see yeah no it's a cool. it's kind of like a a family plot you know you um you have these little headstones that you have a passing acquaintance with and occasionally drop flowers on, but I don't want to dig any of them up.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, this has been a a real pleasure, man. I really, I'm I'm such a fan of your work. And I mean, if folks haven't seen tar, um, it's just a gorgeous piece of filmmaking. It will ask questions of you. You will ask questions of it. It will stick with you like all of Todd's work does. Um, Yes, it's in the award season, and yes, Kate Blanchett may or may not take home yet another Oscar. If it, if she does, it's well-deserved. Um, I wish you nothing but the best with this one, man. And I'm, I'm as you can tell, I'm, I'm a fan of the work, and I, and I hope we can continue the conversation
1: another time. Yeah, me too. Thank you, Josh. I, I, I really appreciate it.
0: And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley and I definitely wasn't pushed
1: to do this by Josh. <laughs>